Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome, friends, to another insightful episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and we have a powerful show for you today as I had the opportunity to connect with Reverend Eugene Cho. Eugene is founder and visionary of One Day's Wages, a grassroots movement focusing on alleviating extreme global poverty. He is the founder and former senior pastor of Quest Church in Seattle, has written a number of books, including his latest entitled, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging in Politics. In this episode, Eugene and I discuss the danger of cultural Christianity and its impact on how we view political issues. Eugene shares practical ways we as pastors and ministry leaders can engage in politics while remaining grounded in kingdom theology and the teachings of Jesus. We also talk about the importance of recognizing that our hope lies in Jesus, not a particular politician or political party. This is a timely and valuable conversation that you'll definitely want to share with your entire team. So please now, won't you join me in my conversation with Eugene Cho. Eugene, welcome back to the Church Leaders Podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you with us, brother. Man, thank you so much. It's really a joy to, to be with you again. Uh, Eugene, here in the U.S., we find ourselves in a presidential election year, and we, we look around and it's, you know, it's a wild time right now for us. So much is happening. I mean, even in your own city in Seattle, um, a group, you know, has taken a portion of the Capitol Hill area, declared it an autonomous zone, free from government control. We see that also happening in D.C. right now. Um, our nation's peppered with protests, some peaceful, others, unfortunately, violent. Um, there's a lot of dissension, um, a lot of division, riots, businesses being destroyed, statues being torn down. Uh, there's a lot of pain and anguish. There's finger pointing. There's grandstanding. There's brokenness. There's hurt. There's manipulation. And we could go on and on. It's 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 messy. Uh, we face so many difficult challenges right now, um, and many people in the church are unsure exactly how we got to this place. I mean, some are surprised that things have become so wild in such a way and so chaotic. And many care very deeply about um, our country, you know, care deeply about society, about the church, about politics. And there's a desire to engage in some way. But when we look out there and and we see what's um, on the news or we read what's on the blog posts or we, you know, just experience what's going on in our own communities, oftentimes we're unsure how to how to navigate this, this chaos in such a way that we can remain Christ-like, that we can honor God in the midst of all this. So Eugene, huge question, um, but I want to, I want to put it out there to you. Where, where do we even begin? Wow. What <laughs> a starter. I thought this was a podcast on football. I thought we were going to be discussing college football here. Uh, well, Jason, thanks again for having me. It really is a pleasure to be back. And uh, the question that you asked, um, you know, as you summarize, I think in pieces, maybe in larger parts, maybe in totality, are things that many people, both Christians and non-Christians, are wrestling with. 
And I'm not quite sure where we begin and how we engage this and where we end, but I feel that as Christians, we have to remember the Christ in our self-identification as Christians. And I would also just acknowledge the fact that in this world, Jesus himself in John 16, 33 says, you're going to have hardship, both as Christians, but I think just in the larger culture, there's going to be brokenness and sinfulness. There's going to be division and pain. So it shouldn't surprise us. And it doesn't mean that we should not be empathetic and engage and care. I mean, I think you articulated it so well that we care about our society. That's what it means to be a good neighbor and light and salt. But I also want to just acknowledge the fact that uh, there's a theologian by the name of Gerhardus Vos, who I think in the 19th century articulated something called the kingdom here and not yet. And so even though we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we still believe that the complete um, redemption of this world obviously has not yet come to pass. And so in this world, we're going to have so much heartache and pain, and we're seeing glimpses of this. So I would just again begin by sharing with folks that as followers of Jesus, we have to on a regular basis be reminded who we worship, who we are, and what we're about. And even if it's not anything dramatic on a small basis, wherever we might be, we're seeking to model Christ, to have integrity, to be faithful, to be gracious, to fight for justice. And this isn't licensed for us to stay in the sidelines. It isn't licensed for us to be soft and passive and not be vocal and not be speak up. That's not what I'm talking about as well at all. But I am saying that we have to simply do our part and it's not necessarily our jobs to save the world, but simply to stay engaged, be faithful and have integrity. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the truly the foundation. Eugene, in your most recent book, uh, I love the title, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging in Politics. Absolutely incredible book. And as you and I were talking, uh, I'd share with you that, you know, this is a book that I have um, young adults, you know, high school and college age kids. And this is a book that, that I want to go through with them. Um, powerful stuff in here. Um, but one of the things that you address is how cultural Christianity really impacts our politics. I'd like to dig in a little bit on this, uh, Eugene. If you could first kind of talk to us, like, what does cultural Christianity look like from the perspective of politics, and why do we need to address this? It's a fundamental question and conversation that we have to be having in the church right now. And the reason why I bring it up is because I hear so often from people that this country, the United States, and I'm a proud, naturalized American citizen, but I constantly hear from people that this is a Christian nation, and we say it with a lot of fanfare, and yet it feels as if, it appears as if our value system isn't consistent with what it means to follow Christ. If I go back a little bit, just from history, we have evidence where we have nations or communities of people that are talking about Jesus, and yet our values, our convictions, our pursuits don't parallel such things. And so sometimes I'm concerned that we can be heralding a particular message, and yet we use it as something to promote our agenda, and at the end we sprinkle a little piece of Jesus or Jesus' fairy dust on it. 
So in Germany, for example, during the rise of Hitler and Nazism, a lot of folks don't know this, but historians believe that around 92% of that nation were professing Christians. And yet, that was where the seed and the evil of Nazism rise. You see images and stories documented by many historians where it was the youth groups of Germany that was really part of the huge weight and, 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 and movement around Nazis. And you see stories and pictures of Hitler with the Bible in his hand during this promotional events. Last year, I spent a few days in Rwanda with a group of pastors from the United States. We were there really just to learn and to observe and to ask questions and to meet with local activists and pastors and nonprofit leaders. And we were also there to mark the 25th anniversary of the horrific Rwandan genocide. And during this time, about a million people, including 800 uh, minority Tutsi people, were slaughtered in this horrific genocide. And same thing. Uh, during that time in Rwanda, about 90% of the nation in the two major dominant ethnic groups were professing Christians. And that genocide began several days after the celebration of Resurrection Sunday. So cultural Christianity, particularly as it engages politics, is when we allow our politics to shape our theology as opposed to our theology. And by our theology, I'm talking about our faith in Christ Jesus, rooted in the word of God, influenced and guided by the Holy Spirit to inform and transform our engagement with politics. That nuance, that difference makes all the difference. Yeah. Eugene, it's interesting as we, as we kind of look and reflect, it's hard, I think, for people to recognize that they are caught up in culture of Christianity in terms of politics. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating to see how people, for example, let me, let me give you an example. If, if someone oftentimes, and this is within the church, if someone knows that a particular uh, preacher or a particular writer or speaker, if they know their kind of political bent, like let's say they know that they support President Trump. Some people will refuse to listen to them, right? Like they just dismiss mm-hmm. them altogether and won't even take anything they have to say um, into account or the vice vice versa, right? Or if they, sure, they sure. know that they don't support President Trump, then they just dismiss them altogether. And that this we have aligned so quickly, it seems, and so deeply with political parties, you know, and again, I'm talking within the church that um, we almost refuse to listen to to other voices. And, and one of the, the, the challenges, and I think one of the dangers, is that it seems that there are many, many people who are quicker to um, share their political views, who they think is right, who they think is wrong, and then they are to share their, their faith story, then they are to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we, how do we kind of step back and begin to really move beyond getting so caught up in um, cultural Christianity in regard to politics or um, political parties and those types of things and, and get to 
really the foundational truths of uh, kingdom theology and the way of Jesus. Sure, sure. Well, let me try to explain why and to whom I, I wrote this book to. Um, and I struggle with this book. It's part of the reason why I felt really convicted in writing this book. There were numerous occasions where I felt the Holy Spirit really speaking and convicting my own heart about needing to repent about sometimes my blind spots. But there's three large groups of people that I wrote this book for. There's one, there's a group of Christians, I think. Um, and I love the Capital C Church. I've been a pastor my whole adult life. And so when I, I, the first group is for those who disengage from politics altogether for whatever reason. It could be exhaustion and disillusion. I'm raising my hand right now because it can get really frustrating and exhausting for lots of reasons. Um, but I do think that there is a group of Christians that have chosen to disengage from politics because of a theological error in thinking that we have to only focus on spiritual things. And again, the answer is not politics. Politics is not the end. It's not the answer to all things. But I would suggest and kindly encourage Christians to understand that politics matter because it influences policies that impact human people. And the last time I read the Bible, God really cares about people, particularly those who may not necessarily have their voices heard in our larger society and culture. So I would, again, just encourage people, we have to engage politics. It's part of what it means to be a disciple, um, to be a good citizen here on this earth. Now, secondly, it's written to a group of people that have become obsessed with politics. Uh, they might not see it or acknowledge it, but it's their idolatry. And because it's their idolatry, everything that they say or do is justified by their political ideology. And this concerns me because our, I think, commitment to respect and civility and kindness and the fruits of the spirit get thrown out the window because our political ideology says at all costs, we've got to win. It doesn't matter what happens or what we say or what we do. And then I think there's a third group of people that are followers of Jesus that acknowledge that to be a follower of Jesus means that we're called to be light and salt. And one of the ways that we do that, and in fact, a significant way that we do that is how we choose to engage as citizens even though this isn't our permanent home. So they know that politics is not where they find their ultimate identity as human beings and as followers of Christ, but it's a medium in which they try to express uh, their, 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 their identity as followers of Jesus. And so this book, I offer 10 ways, 10 practical things to help Christians navigate that. And so just to name a couple of them, I say that we should not go to bed with political parties or with powerful politicians. I'm not suggesting that one can't identify with the party. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't vote because I think you should vote. But I think there is a danger when we have blind allegiance that we refuse to dismiss anyone and everyone who sides with a different party. Or we refuse to ask any questions of accountability of politicians or people of our own affiliation. That's Those two things are examples of these sweeping generalizations that are really, really fraught with cultural Christianity. And ultimately, 
as you shared, it feels as if that's the most important thing. And so when you look at people's social medias, it's hard to distinguish in what way are we trying to model the person of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, because it feels like we become evangelists for a particular politician or they're a particular platform. And that's very, very concerning. Yeah. One of the things that we see, and, and I, I love kind of how you lay that out, because I think this is, you know, one of the great challenges, is especially in election year, it, this always seems to get heightened, right? Um, but it seems that over the last, I don't know, you know, four or five, six years, maybe beyond that, eight years, it's been, it, it's, it's become to an even greater degree. And this idea of us putting forth our um, political beliefs, but not just saying what we believe in, but almost treating other people who don't agree um, like they somehow are, are against God, right? You know, there's this idea that, that, you know, if you can't agree with the way that I view it, then somehow you're not, you don't really love Jesus as much as I do. And, and it's scary in, in, in that way. And, and, and it's, um, you know, I think one of the ways we see this is, um, and this is incredibly sensitive uh, to many, um, especially in the church, uh, you know, in certain parts of the country specifically, and that is this idea of patriotism and nationalism. And I, I think those two words often get confused. But there are many people who ascribe to a belief that any perceived offense to our country is also an offense to God. How do we um, how do we kind of navigate that as as ministry leaders and pastors to help people kind of walk through that and understand truly what is the core when it comes to to honoring God, and then what do we see as you know in terms of our country itself? Sure. So let me take a step back. I'll get to that question. Mm -hmm. So the number one question that I've received uh, ever since the book uh, was released, the number one question by far is, Eugene, just be honest. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Hmm. And my honest answer, and I'm not trying to be circuitous, but my honest answer is on what issue? What are we talking about? Right. As if to say that one party has a dominant monopoly on the kingdom of God. And that's what I push back on. I don't believe that. I also just believe that it's incredibly important for us to acknowledge that even as I write this book and talk about civility and respect, that this isn't licensed to be soft and to be passive and quiet about us contending for things. I believe that you can be fierce and contend for convictions and still hold to the values of the fruits of the spirit about honesty and gentleness and patience and kindness. I believe you can hold both of these things in tension, even though it's extremely challenging. And I think that when you hold these things in tension, that's the countercultural element that we're missing right here. Mm. It's not one or the other. And so this might be hard, but I think there should be some common grounds about how we engage. And therefore, we have to hold our leaders, our elected leaders accountable as well. So yes, in my book, I say that I refuse 
to make sweeping generalizations about people that I disagree with and I've been criticized. But I also think that for our elected leaders, that we have to hold people of whatever party or affiliation, we have to hold them accountable and call certain things ungodly, wrong, that, sh that we should not justify it. And it's our commitment to hold ourselves and others accountable in a spirit of love that sharpens us, sharpens the church, sharpens our culture, and sharpens our leaders as well. Now, to your question about what it means to speak with this whole distinction between uh, nationalism and patriotism. So I consider myself patriotic. As I shared earlier, my parents and I, we immigrated to the United States when I was six years old. We became naturalized American citizens. It's something that I hold very dear to me. And what I push back is that when I do have criticisms about our country, about certain things that we're doing, whether it's policies, whether it's culture, whether whatever the blank might be, people, some people automatically assume, and this is part of the catchphrase of our world, you hate America, you're not a patriot, you're a threat. And what it ends up doing is it causes an inability for us to have substantive conversations and everything becomes about me versus them. You're an enemy, you're not an ally, you're not, you're a foe, and therefore we're not able to have anything substantive to help us better understand one another. So, so many people in our country are having conversations, including in the church, but we've placed ourselves in echo chambers and silos, and we actually don't know hardly anyone that believes in something different. So we end up speaking to ourselves. When I read the scripture, I actually think, I, I can't find anything where it says that we should basically um, uh, have this self-elevated view of me, myself, and I, or in this case, just our country and no one else. In fact, we see the opposite of God's love for the nations. Mm -hmm. So I think there is space for us to be patriotic, uh, to have a deep appreciation, a deep respect for your particular country. But in that love, there has to be room and space for us to speak into both good things, but also not good things, things that we believe are reflective of God's kingdom and things that are contrary to God's kingdom. I love my wife as an example. I love my wife and I'll bless my wife. I respect my wife. I'll nurture my wife. But in the same way that we both love each other, it means that we've also given each other permission to speak truth, to hold one another accountable, to encourage each other to both at times repentance and also affirmation. Both of those things are essential, and I think that's also absolutely necessary in how we engage our nation as well. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things you touch on there is the, the idea of respect, which, which I think is very important, that we, we um, are able to respect people of differing views. We're able to um, respect and, and love you know, the place in which we live, you know, the country in which we live enough that we are willing to um, ask challenging questions and dig a little, little more deeply, and I think these are some of the things that we are we are missing in some ways. These are some of the things that have have almost become, you know, not not even part of our the, the current way in which we discuss, 
you know, issues that, that have great impact. There's, there's a lack of respect um, for people of differing opinions, uh, which as, as you've shared, you know, that, that does not honor what Christ has taught us and how he has taught us to, to live. And so how do we, how do we begin? Let's, let's talk as pastors and ministry leaders, right? How do we begin to um, personally engage in politics in a way that honors Jesus, upholds kingdom values, but but what are some practical ways that we we can begin, you know, engaging in in our own churches, in our own communities, that help us move beyond some of the the division and the difficulties that that we see so prevalent? Yeah, great question. Um, and what I would say, uh, just a couple practical things is, you know, we're encouraged by Scripture to pray for our leaders. And this is really hard to pray for our leaders and for our nation, depending on how you feel. But this is really hard. I made a decision some years ago because a mentor of mine uh, made a decision in his life somewhere in the 1970s to start praying for his mayor and his president every single day. And I talk about this in the book. And at first, he said it was really easy to do because the current president at that time was someone that he had identified with and supported and voted for. And when elections change and different political parties came into power and emergency, found it that much more challenging. But he had felt convicted to make that pledge to pray for his mayor, the local affairs, as well as the president, the national affairs. And I'll never forget what he said, that in doing so, it wasn't so much about praying for elected leaders. He really felt like God was also moving and softening and humbling his own heart. And I think this is really important for us as leaders, is that here we are trying to move mountains. And yet we never acknowledge that it's possible that we're actually the mountain that God wants to move. So prayer, I think, has that power. Uh, to just somehow uh, play a part in our spiritual discipleship. And it's what scripture encourages us to do. I would say that it's really important for us to learn. I think for many of us, we are formed by cable news and our favorite news pundits and maybe the occasional Facebook or Twitter news that we receive. And we owe it to ourselves to dive into subjects and policies and rulings and to understand the depth and complexities rather than, I think, at times, folks manipulating the currency of fear to somehow get to us. And so as leaders, we have to do it so that we can encourage our congregants, our parishioners to do this as well. I think we've always been really good about discussions and small groups. And so people, I think churches are afraid, pastors are afraid to have this conversation And what I would suggest to pastors and leaders that are listening to this, so I've had some pastors push back at me and say, you know, like you shouldn't be talking about politics. You shouldn't have written this book. And I gently remind them that I'm not suggesting that my book is the answer to all things and that I have it all together because I'm still learning. I'm still bumbling my way through. And I'm not obsessed with it. It's not the totality of all things leadership. But if we abdicate, if we simply say we refuse to talk about this in the church, in my messages, in small groups, in leadership development, we're basically abdicating the discipleship of such topics to other people. Mm. And we best understand our church folks are being discipled 
by MSNBC, Fox News, uh, CNN, right. or whatever it might right. be. They're being discipled by other voices. And I would rather, and I'm speaking directly to pastors and leaders here, pastors, leaders, I would rather your church folks be informed by you and how you prayerfully, thoughtfully, theologically wrestle with these things and thus encouraging your church folks to grow as well. So those are some practical things among others that I list in the book that I would encourage fellow pastors and leaders. Yeah, I love that, Eugene. Yeah, that, that's, that's spot on. Um, what would you say to the pastors? And and I know just even in recent weeks, a, a good friend, a pastor, um, who uh, pr- was preaching a sermon and uh, had had invited some people to to be a part of this message that was on racial reconciliation and and got um, really, really hard pushback from some people in the church um, saying, you know, you're too, you're getting too political on things. And, and it was a very kingdom focused, you know, uh, message, but people just kind of throwing their arms up in the air um, and then leaving, you know, saying, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a part of a church that like this, you know what I mean? Type of a thing. And that, sure. that's hard, you know, as pastors and ministry leaders, I mean, we've, we've all had people who have left our, our congregations, right? And and that's that's never really an easy thing. I mean, well, honestly, maybe sometimes it's you're thankful that God has, you know, encouraged someone to, to move on because uh, they've been, you know, causing some issues or, or whatnot. But it's, it's you know, as, as people who have given our lives to discipling people and leading people and, and seeking to help people um, grow as Christ followers, it's hard. And so what would you say to pastors who um, have been engaging in in some of these, you know, very kingdom-focused conversations that relate directly to political issues that we're facing and have had that pushback, you know, and have had people um, send that, you know, nasty email and have had people walk off? What would you say, hmm. um, you know, how, how have you navigated that in your own life and, and what encouragement would you have? Yeah, we've all been there as right. pastors and leaders, and we'll always be there. There's always going to be occasions. And, and here's what I'll say. There's so much that I'd love to share here. But just for the sake of time, let me just share maybe three things here. You know, I think when it's all said and done, we have to just look in the mirror and say, have I prayed through this? Have I wrestled with this topic? Have I wrestled with God's scripture? Have I asked the Holy Spirit to guide me in this conversation? And when it's all said and done, whether it's praise or whether it's criticism, we have to be careful. We don't live for the praises of people because if you live for the praises and affirmation of people, we are going to be crushed by the criticisms of people, even when they leave. So I think ultimately, I'm not suggesting that we place ourselves in a silo and it's all just about me, myself and I, but this is where our integrity as followers of Jesus and as leaders, even if we may have different views, the process by which in which, in which we wrestle with things, I think is so important. And I'm not equating our pastors and leaders to Jesus, but I think Jesus is a good person for us to think about and discuss because Jesus was perfect. He's the son of God. He's our Lord and Messiah. And yet we know on so many occasions 
that he was criticized, he was threatened, he was bullied. There was people after his very life, disciples left him, people that were with him at one point of his life who were so behind him, were no longer with him. At one point, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. There were some folks in that crowd that said those very words, that said, crucify him, crucify him later. And so I think it's a reminder again that when we seek to embody the kingdom of God, there are going to be just responses all over the map. And so having said that, we have to acknowledge that for some of us within this Western context, and just in general, Western and all around the world, people, particularly in a consumeristic society, we're very enamored by a gospel that comforts us. Mm. Now, that's good because the gospel does comfort us. Right. But the gospel doesn't only comfort us. It also disrupts us. The gospel does both because we as human beings desperately need both in our lives. And so I think our encouragement as leaders is we have to keep sharing with people that the gospel does both. And there are going to be moments that will that will leave us very uh, stirred and shaken and disrupted. And it's okay for us to still navigate and to still wrestle with these things. It's really interesting because when congregants sometimes say you're getting too political, they'll never say that when I'm talking about something that affirms some of their political views. Mm-hmm. They'll never say that. And so it's when they disagree with something. And so I think this is an opportunity for us. And the last thing that I'll say is I try to navigate these conversations with five words, five words that are really shaped how I want to lead. And I'm not a huge fan of alliteration, but it happens to be that all five of these words begin with the letter P. And so I'll just share it really quickly in hopes that it would encourage pastors. There's another P right there. So there's pastoral. We're called to be pastoral. When it's all said and done, we have to pastor people, shepherd people. We have to love people. The second thing is prophetic. The danger is that for us as pastors, some of us have abandoned our call to be prophetic, and all we do is simply be pastoral. Sometimes the opposite happens. We embrace the call to be prophetic. We're protesting, we're marching, we're shouting, we're doing all of these things, and we've abandoned the call to be pastoral as well. Both are so essential for leaders today. We have to be both pastoral and to be prophetic. And when we hold these things in tension together, then we're discipling our congregation in both comfort as well as disruption and stirring. The third thing is personal. I think our most powerful sermons are by the way that we live our lives, not just on Sunday for 60 minutes or 90 minutes, but Monday through Saturday, every single day, how we live our lives, how we love and forgive, how we love our enemies, how we engage and speak up for the vulnerable. All of those things will matter. And then the fourth thing is practical. We can think theological nebulous concepts and try to impress people with German dead theologians or policy numbers and such, but we have to also give people practical ways to apply what they've heard and learned because I think that's really the best way that our lives are changed when our hands and our feet Our hearts and minds all coalesce together. And the last one 
is that it's not just by our, our weight, our power, our network, our chariots, our horses. We have to depend on prayer. And when I say prayer, I think it's a reliance on the Holy Spirit, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Those five things are, are what I would encourage our leaders to think about as we navigate the space. It's awesome, bro. That's golden. Great stuff. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Eugene, for um, taking time to be with us. And again, thank you for taking time. And and I know it was one of those things that, that you and God wrestled over as you've shared in writing this book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. And I really encourage our listeners to pick it up, especially as we're navigating um, these next several months, uh, moving into uh, a presidential election. Um, there are lots of, lots of conversations that are going to come up. And uh, this is just very, very helpful to to um, you know, give you a way to kind of think and process through how not only for our own lives, you know, how, how are we living out um, the kingdom values that Jesus uh, taught and shared, but how can we as pastors and ministry leaders help uh, the people God has entrusted to us to navigate this uh, this kind of chaotic time we find ourselves in. So thank you, brother. Um, I appreciate you and your ministry and your heart for God and the kingdom. Thanks, brother. God bless you, and God bless all the pastors and leaders who are on this uh, on this journey together. Amen. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.